welcome to Kurt Vonnegut, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Sway. What is going on? I feel like I am unstuck in time. How are we here now? <laughs> what is going on? Same. Confusing. Shocking. Uh, maybe D- some people. WTF, mate. <laughs> We're Sorry, also for a second, yeah. For a second, I went back to mid early two thousand three. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, that's a weird random meme from way back. <laughs> it's oh, the unstuckness. Boy. It does it to us all. Yeah. That's what I mean. Past, future, present collide. Yeah. And there's no one I'd rather do it with. Hey, Alex. Same, great buddy. to be here. <laughs> yeah. We. So yeah, a lot to tell folks. I think, but but oh, the yeah. first thing is like. Happy 99th birthday of Kurt Vonnegut. If you're mm. listening to this the day it came out, we decided to put it out on November 11th, and he was born November 11th of 1922. So he he passed in 2007, but if he was still with us, it'd be his 99th birthday. Could have done it next year. Didn't want to wait. Yeah, why wait? Yeah, yeah. could have gone for the big round number, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> well, some yeah. came out that we wanted to talk about, so you know. That's the thing. I think that's really the impetus, yeah. So yeah, so folks, this, I have not exactly figured out how it'll work, but it'll probably be a link in the like main description of this podcast can also take you to YouTube, where there'll be exactly the same audio with like a few pictures. It's not a video of our faces, but it's like a few pictures from what we're talking about. Because uh, the topic of this is a new graphic novel of Slaughterhouse-Five, and... Like I like I mentioned, Kurt Vonnegut passed away, and that that tends to to slow down the process of making a bunch of podcasts about him. But there's a new thing to talk about that is thrilling, and we thought, let's get together, let's do it. Yeah, and it's in the visual medium, so we figured podcast is the perfect format. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all gonna work out. <laughs> yeah, and so the this like if you're it, this is a totally good show if you're driving or walking or whatever, and also if you want to look at a YouTube video with. Like basically some pictures of the comic book in spots to like mm-hmm. help you understand or or extra appreciate what we're talking about that is available too. Like one extra note before we start, we this this is our show. We're able to make it. And also I think in my moves between apartments and cities, I lost the drive with the little sound bed on it. So that's why you didn't hear the normal theme song. And we'll just do like other theme songs for stuff as we go. And yeah, we haven't I don't think we've ever done an episode about an adaptation of a Vonnegut book. We've just done episodes about the books, really. And so this is a new frontier. This is thrilling. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, if I recall, the only time we went outside that, did we review that stage play? We reviewed a stage play of Sirens of Titan, I believe. Yeah, like within an episode. Yeah, yeah. Within an episode. And then we also had one episode where we talked to Mark Leeds, the editor of the Vonnegut Encyclopedia. But other than that, it's been strictly, you know, physical, like this book came out. Here it is. So um, we figured this was a great excuse. We should mention uh, the book was put out by Ryan North and Albert Montes. And how would you describe the art style, Alex? I feel like we should at least give people a... It's a little Mike Mignola, but a little more con- cartoony than that. Heavy, blocky shadows. I don't know. I'm struggling to grapple with the fact that this is a visual medium and we want to present it in audio form. But it's a pretty book. It's real. I like it. I like having it on my shelf. Yeah, me too. But yeah, to, to talk about the, the art of it, I think we can get into a segment called Frankentime. Da-da-da-da-da-da-do-do. 
So that music was different than what they expected to hear. Okay. Yeah, I guess I can live with that. <laughs> yeah, Frankentime fans are very upset, Dang. but hopefully they can come along. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are we really even Alex and Michael? Or is this a weird transmission from an alternate reality? You know? I don't know. Some kind of barnhouse effect thing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We could both be on the moon or an invented planet. A exactly. you know, Titan has birds on it in this podcast. That could be Pooty going wheat. on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the podcast will end as it began. Pooty wheat. <laughs> But uh, Frank and Time is a segment that we have used to say how, like, essay collections that Monica did came together or letters or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this is how people after his time put together a new graphic novel of it. And and the art, it is this artist, Albert Montes, and he is a oh, Spanish artist Thank who you. was born in Barcelona in 1971 and has done a bunch of different work we'll talk about. But his, I really, really like how he drew this book. I think it... It feels very 20th century cartooning to me in a good way. Like it, it reminds me of the whole range of strip comics and and Archie and like there, all these different like comic books that came before. There is something strippy about it, which is interesting. And it actually applies pretty well to the subject matter just because Vonnegut tends to write in chapters that are so distinct from one another. I mean, in Slaughterhouse-Five, of course, they'll literally be like, this is now a different place in a different time, unrelated. Now this is happening. So there, it's conceived of as like short little, it's also a breezy read because you can basically stop at any, every three pages, <laughs> Billy goes to a different time and something completely different happens. And it has right. uh, little mechanisms that only exist for the duration of a couple pages. So it ends up feeling, yeah, very strip-like, but in a good way. I enjoyed it. Like it's definitely not going for that superhero look or photorealism. It's yeah cartoony in a good way. Exactly, yeah. But with those... Those big, bold shadows that I love. Right. Yeah, it is like gritty, but never like horrific to look at or a horror comic or something. It's just like, you know, someone dies and there's a spatter of blood. They don't like skip that or or do yeah. like a, a whiz bang uh, cartoon bomb or something. I don't, I don't know what the silly version would be. No, I think they really get Kurt. I think that does come through. They do what they show brutal horrible things and they do it with a wry sense of well we're just looking at this now which is exactly yeah. what kurt's sort of tone is and i think they get the whole meta-ness of it because this even starts with you know very little liberties were taken it's a pretty faithful adaptation but one of the things right off the bat is you know they have a little framing device where they say like Kurt would say, if he were alive writing this, I think, you are now reading a graphic novel that's an adaptation of a book written by this man, Kurt Vonnegut. Like, they do a little thing that draws attention to the fact that this is just an additional work done in collaboration with, you know, a person who's, in a way, you have to be unstuck in time to collaborate with Kurt Vonnegut, I guess, grim as that is. But, uh yeah. Yeah, I think I think they get it and I think it shows through. I'm I'm all for it. We did a good job. It's good that we're covering this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I am also we could just tell people I'm also very excited about this graphic novel. I think they did really cool things with it. Like yeah. it's it's fun that we are doing another episode about something we like. Cause yeah, it's it wouldn't be fun to just be like, well, they put out a new Vonnegut thing and it stinks. End of show. Thanks for coming. Like, <laughs> or even if it was just fine, I don't. I wouldn't want to do a show where we weren't sort of 
uh, high on the product. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so, so do we have more information about how this came together, Alex? Yeah, it's something that had the support of the Vonnegut estate. And then as far as I can tell, the publisher approached the talent because they they're they're both like Vonnegut fans going way back, but the uh, the people who made this the the graphic novelist who wrote it like the adapter of Vonnegut's book is Ryan North. He's Canadian. He was born in Ontario, lives in Toronto, and when I first got this, my first first reaction to it was, is Ryan North the guy from Dinosaur Comics? Because he is. Dinosaur Comics is a web comic that started in two thousand three. It's one where it's the same picture every time, but it's a T-Rex talking to a Utah Raptor and a Dromesiomimus about just funny ideas. And then T-Rex steps on a house and it's always the same picture. Uh, so if you're an internet person, you've probably seen it. And that guy did the Slaughterhouse-Five graphic novel. Amazing. Wow. I'm having that connection happen for me in real time now because I love dinosaur comics. I knew the name Ryan North was familiar. Yeah. And I also knew you would do research for this. <laughs> So I I delayed making that connection so that I can experience it raw Ooh. right now. That's amazing because Dinosaur <laughs> Comics is fantastic. Yeah, literally the same picture. So almost a writing challenge and yeah, and succeeded with flying colors. Um, so that's very <laughs> cool to know, especially because so many of the things that we'll get into in the book that I think are great about it do require a thorough understanding of the medium as a visual, you know, way to represent what was originally written words and doing that <laughs> with ingenuity and in innovative ways. And it's really cool to see that connection because Ryan North with Dinosaur Comics did something that was almost like a magic trick or a novelty as far as strips go and and nailed it. And yeah. this has a lot of that energy to it, that inventiveness. Absolutely. Yeah. Invention and and yeah, working within such constraints, because like mm -hmm. when you read this, they added basically no words except for what you said about like the, the additional and completely true framing device of this is a graphic novel adaptation of Kurt's book. And then Kurt's book mm -hmm. starts with him saying, it's me, Kurt Vonnegut. I'm writing a book. I'll be in it sometimes. Like it's it's totally mm -hmm. authentic to it. And yeah. the, the writing challenge is taking all of the words on Vonnegut's page and keeping the correct ones at the correct times and adding anything or it's like well if we're going to keep it totally faithful how do we add new thoughts or why are we doing this do we have anything to say and they do purely through the visual part they comment upon the the faithful transcript and it's pretty cool yeah it's awesome and uh, a couple other ryan north things i didn't know is that he has written comics for Marvel, specifically the Squirrel Girl character. And I guess some of those reference Tralfamador as he does it. Oh. And then he's also done adaptations of Shakespeare where it's a choose your own adventure. He's done like informative comedy books. And then in an interview with comicsbeat.com, he said that his first ever Vonnegut experience was that his friend Priya gave him a paperback of Slaughterhouse-Five. And he describes like finishing the book and needing to pause. And that was very surprising to him because usually he just rips through books and moves on to the next book. But he needed to like stop and take in this revelatory novel he read. And then that artist he's working with is Albert Montes, who it turns out most of his background is in Spanish satirical magazines. 
He, for several years, was the director of a set of a comic satirical magazine called El Hueves. And he and a lot of the rest of the staff quit in 2014 because the publisher wouldn't print a joke they made about Spain's king. Turns out Spain has a king still. I was not totally aware of that, but they they just have a royal family still. But they, at the last minute, threw out 60,000 copies of the magazine because they decided they could not print the joke he wanted to do where the king is putting a crown full of poo on his successor to abdicate. Got it. So a very, like, fun, transgressive yeah. artist, and I think that is good for this kind of project. That's cool. Also very straightforward satire. Yeah. <laughs> Not, does, yeah, which is great. Satire gets so often gets lost in the margins of nuance, but not when you're putting a shit crown on someone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows what you're talking about. Appar- apparently, he had also done a cover where the crown prince was having sex with his wife from behind, and it was just mm-hmm. explicit and going on. And they and the publisher was like, "You can't do that." And it's like, okay, I guess he wanted to though. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, just I going get, for it. I get. Yeah. This is Sergio Aragones, firebrand type. I get him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, and yeah, he's drawn other science fiction comics. He did a graphic novel tie-in to a Jonathan Colton album, like a concept album called Solid State. Uh, See, this is already, doing this podcast is so enriching, even to me, because Jonathan Colton's one of my favorite artists of all time. Oh. And uh, I, I can see I had it. no yeah. I, I am somehow... I think because of my entire music uh, like experience is whittled down to being through Spotify now and Hmm. Jonathan Colton's stuff. Some of it is on Spotify and some of it isn't. So I didn't know that he had a concept album called solid state. And that's what I'm going to do right after we wrap up here. That's amazing. Oh, that's very exciting. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. If if people don't know uh, Jonathan Colton, of course, most famous for the portal credits theme and the portal Two credits theme, both great. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and it he fits you i i get it like yeah funny clever love excellent him. music love him um and yeah and so he he's this kind of artist like he can do comedy satire outrageous things and also meaningful things all at once and the publisher did an interview with him he said that vonnegut is not so widely read in spain which i, I understand and so Montes, his first experience was reading Galapagos in his late 20s. And he said he proceeded to read most of Vonnegut's work within the next year. He was just thrilled about it. But I have never really thought about, like, not primarily English language countries and how much or little Vonnegut they get. So right. I, it's cool he stumbled onto it. Yeah, it does feel also Vonnegut, the way Vonnegut is so idiomatic and like his, I, it's interesting. I wonder what languages that tone translates into and which it doesn't and how it is relative to the social mores of that, of various cultures, you know, because Kurt right. has such a very interesting <laughs> ma- mishmash of intellectualism, but like, fuck you intellectualism, like the bad kid in class or whatever, right. um, who's like drawing buttholes and stuff into his book, like wry, sardonic sort of little imp. That he is. I wonder if that all translates or how much of it. That's fascinating. And then, of course, you wonder with great, like, foreign language, like Pablo Neruda or whoever, um, you know, poets or authors, you know, you're not getting the. (laughs) That's why people used to brag, like, oh, yeah, I'm reading Dostoevsky in the original Russian. You do get something more, right? 
Um, yeah, but I, I yeah. argue you'd have to be steeped in that culture from birth to really get it, which is why you got to value your own cultural heritage, which is the theme that Vonnegut talked about with the erasure of his German roots. And we're back on track. <laughs> Buddy, we were always on track. That was great. Uh, I guess yeah. I was all on track. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, yeah, I've wondered the same things, like especially Midwesternisms or like weird flying fuck at a rolling donut, like. Like, do they get it or or do they assume like I would get it more if I was American, you know, or I, yeah. I, I don't know how it goes, but it seems to work for at least Albert Montes. And then here he is like drawing Billy Pilgrim for the first ever. Mm -hmm. This is apparently the first ever graphic novel adaptation of any Vonnegut novel ever, ever done. And well, we'll get to that. All right. I'm going to save that. I want to I want to dish on who looked like you thought they looked would look and yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh i love the segments um and and yeah this was published by boom studios at the end of 2020 and the there were a few other people working on it uh montez also did the lettering in addition to the art he had a co-illustrator scott newman on the cover ricard zaplana provided color assistance and then there were other editors and staff pitching in and then also, apparently, the Vonnegut estate gave them photos of stuff like Vonnegut's friends in real life. So then Montez had that as a model to draw from. So it's at least partly informed by how people looked in real life, the, the various characters. Mm. Although Billy is not real, many of them are. Who's yeah. real? Let's see. Well, Paul Lazaro's real. Roland Weary's real. Edgar Derby's real. I and see. Bernardo Harris, the, the big one other than Vonnegut, probably. Yeah. yeah. And his wife. Interesting. Okay, I'm looking at these caricatures with all new respect and trying to like reconstruct the real human faces <laughs> they would be. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and then with like which words got added or removed, like you said, the big change is this is written in the third person now. And that's also exactly what's happening. It totally fits the book. Like it was written in mm -hmm. the first person by the author who's deceased. There's also an interview Ryan North did where he said that when he was talking to the publisher about the way to do this, he immediately pitched two main changes to the text. And one is to change some now offensive terms in it. His rationale was, quote, terms that were more acceptable in the 1960s certainly don't work now, including them out of a sense of faithfulness and authenticity only results in you hurting people and even knocking readers out of the story as they trip over words that wouldn't be said today, even by Kurt, end quote. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think that Love makes it. sense. Like he's he's saying like, like there's one yeah. spot where in the book, Kurt called people gypsies. And then in this graphic novel, they call them Romani because, mm -hmm. you know, like if Kurt were around today, he probably would have caught up to that too. Makes sense. Right. Then the other big change is a change to the death toll numbers for Dresden, mm. because it turns out that Vonnegut was working off the studies he had. And now there are other numbers that say it was a smaller death toll than Vonnegut said. Gotcha. Which would mean he actually made more money per death than oh. in his original calculation slightly off. It's like three <laughs> bucks a death. Good for him. Yeah, pretty pretty good. Yeah, that's a, you know, a return on investment? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. I don't know how the economy works at all. Uh <laughs> so it goes. Cha-ching. That's the full quote that you don't usually hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it goes. Cash register sound. Yeah. Kurt's eyes get dollar signs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, have you ever seen that commercial Grant Hill did for Sprite? 
the basketball player. There's one oh, where no. he just talks about Sprite, and then every time he says something good about it, a little cartoon Grant Hill oh, pops yes. up, getting more money. Like getting money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have seen that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, they changed the numbers. The uh, stated numbers in Vonnegut's book were closer to around 135,000. According to Vox and other sources, it was actually more like 25,000. And North says that they oh, just went again. Yeah, that's a big deal. And like, yeah. like Vonnegut says, it was more deaths than Hiroshima, but that probably wasn't true. And so North basically said they just decided to check all of the hard data in the book because they could and they would just update it for this. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. Like, it's not a I uh, with the actual novel, I almost wish there was a little like sticky note inserted into it to say, hey, by the way, the whole novel's great. And this is just based on old numbers, you know, like it is like a very it, it is misinformation it's just not like badly intentioned or anything yeah but the imagery of like like he says schoolgirls were boiled alive in water towers hiding from bombs and like that happened to at least to one person that's significant you know it's a yeah it, at some point a statistic becomes a statistic but that is a big swing bigger than i expected 135 down to 25 good i guess you know, <laughs> I guess. True. That is good news. It's yeah. last death. It's retroactive yeah. good history news. You don't get that often. <laughs> I, yeah, my I, God, most of the time you find out stuff in the past was worse than you thought. <laughs> Isn't <yeah>. that the way? <laughs> That's very true. Uh, <laughs> so that uh, those are really the two ways these artists said we're going to actively edit Vonnegut or change Vonnegut. Uh, otherwise, it's just taking things from the book, assembling them into a graphic novel, sort of like adapting it into a movie or anything else. And we'll, we can talk about it further as we go, but I think they've worked like really, really hard to translate this novel accurately and like mm -hmm. and like preserve as much as they could and celebrate as much as they could. Well, and you mentioned in the notes here, they decided to because Kurt mentions genitals, quite frankly, and they'd interpreted they did censor the genitals. You know what I mean? Like, mm. it's a nuanced decision to decide. So if a writer says, this guy's dick was out, does that mean the audience should see a drawing of a dick? Or or is that necessary? And they went with uh, putting word boxes over people's genitals that say the words, like, balls on pecker. <laughs> Which is a, it's a way to go. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's The other one is, they're talking about Billy Pilgrim having a tremendous wang. And so a really long word box that says tremendous wang is over his penis. And then and then other times it's just like his legs are in a position where you can't see it and stuff and shadows and all the all the PG-13 moves. Yeah. All the normal, uh, you know, Montana wild hacks hair goes strategically over her nipples. Yeah. Things like that. <laughs> Classic Adam and Eve stuff. <laughs> Uh, yeah, or the or the other major text out there, Austin Powers, of course. Austin Powers, exactly, uh, is Either also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're constantly hiding his dick with champagne that they're pouring into a grapefruit that she's using to cover her bosom, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, if anyone out there is looking for a shaft tattoo idea, tremendous wang is pretty good. <laughs> Thousands of listeners writing this down, writing this down. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Is that is that Franken time? Yeah, I think that's pretty much there. The like last last thing it, I noticed yeah. is 
back to Dinosaur Comics by Ryan North. There's oh, a, there's one strip from 2018, and it's talking about <laughs> the T-Rex is talking about um, the difficulty of like when you're a writer, you get the advice to read a lot. It's like, how do I become a good writer? Read a lot of writers. And the strip is about the concept of, you know, if you read a bunch of a writer, do you just end up imitating them? And then the the upshot they come to is like read lots of different writers, spread it out. But I'm fascinated by that strip, which we'll link because the the main example in it is Vonnegut and that it ends with the T-Rex like compulsively quoting Vonnegut and saying Pooty Weed at the end. And it's like there's clearly a guy who likes Slaughterhouse-Five and Kurt Vonnegut a whole lot. It's very exciting that he did. Yeah. Also, there's more to sounding Vonnegut than saying so it goes. I'm sorry, I'm reading the dinosaur comic. Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? Everything you just said wasn't beautiful, and some of it hurt. That's also from the same one. <laughs> well, poo, tea wheat. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, really good, like, jokes about quoting Vonnegut, and then he proceeded mm-hmm. to adapt an entire novel. It's amazing. There you go. And maybe it's worth saying with with the past episodes, you know, we do a very, very close reading of the novel. This one, we're mainly looking at the differences or the exciting things with the graphic novel, we're not going to entirely repeat our Slaughterhouse-Five episode. We already have it. But it's still a good time to get into a segment called Plot Time. Tick, 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 talk, tick, tick, talk, tick, bong, 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 bong. Great. <laughs> plot Time. And we, we've talked before in super depth about the, the plot of Slaughterhouse-Five, but maybe we talk about it a little bit here just to like refresh people who are not as on top of it as we are. Yeah, I suppose we should. It's how long is this book too? I was amazed. It's I guess Slaughterhouse Five itself is pretty breezy, but it's so impactful that it doesn't feel that way. It really mm. sticks with you and takes a long time to digest, as you you know, as Albert experienced. But it can be summarized pretty quickly. There's a character who's been unstuck in time, Billy Pilgrim, which is to say that he randomly hops around to different points in his life and his and uh, this book takes the universe as predeterministic so it's your life is just like a movie right everything that has happened will happen everything that can happen or whatever you know is yeah so time is a, an illusion that's irrelevant in that sense and he can uh, randomly jump around and to various different points in his life and at one point he experiences the firebombing of Dresden in World War II, and he's one of very few survivors, uh, and a bunch of stuff happens. <laughs> and at another point, he's a successful optometrist who starts a national like thought revolution and then gets assassinated. And then at a point somewhere in between those two points, he's abducted by aliens and lives for a while in an alien zoo on Tralfamador. And uh, and there's other little flashes of different points in his life where we get uh, insight into like his relationship with his wife and things like that. But those are the big points in his life that we continuously return to. And of course, they comment upon each other. And it's a brilliant treatise about war and peace and the toll of human violence. (laughs) Did I what did I miss anything? No, I wish I timed that. That was like a perfect quick rundown of the entire thing. Yeah, that, that was it. Yeah, like nice. <laughs> yeah, it's like Slaughterhouse Four, but uh, more extreme. <laughs> For some reason, I imagine Slaughterhouse Four is Rocky Four. Like it's all the characters, but doing Rocky Four. So mm. you fight Russians. I robot butler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
going, oh no, the humanity. <laughs> uh, so it goes. So it goes. I can't. It's not a good Stallone, but you understand. Adrian, so it goes. <laughs> but yeah, throughout that process, uh, Ryan and Albert do a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Let's let's do plot time Slaughterhouse Five graphic novel edition, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Because the yeah the big, it's not totally a change. It's just the big thing they're able to do is like this short book that takes a lot of time to process. It's partly because there are these huge constant leaps in time and space and somebody's life and also all these concepts being laid out. And so they are both able to jump around, you know, just the next panel is the next thing going on. You immediately see where you are now. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also do a wonderful thing toward the very start of it where they have a huge two-page sort of layout just called Billy's Timeline. And it's a big, huge drawing of Billy Pilgrim's entire life, almost sort of like that, like March of Progress drawing where a caveman becomes a a modern human, you know, like you just see him go from a baby to an adult to a now abducted adult to an old man to death. Like It's just all laid out really concisely, really easily. Yeah, it's basically structured like a good podcast like we just did they give you the synopsis and then they go we'll get into it yeah. uh I, that was my first note as well alex was that timeline i thought was the first little bit of visual ingenuity and then i really liked or the next one that hit for me was when they introduced roland weary and it says in the book text uh roland weary had on every piece of equipment he'd ever been issued and every present he'd ever received from home that's just to show how gung-ho this fucking guy is about being a soldier. And in the book, <laughs> that's as much time as we spend with that thought. You get it. Um, but this is like uh, four-fifths of the page is a Roland Weary paper doll with everything he owns extruded out into like, yeah. there's this piece of equipment, this undershirt, this bandana, these gloves. Under the gloves, he has this little charm on his wrist. Like, it lists everything he's wearing and has them all displayed for you. And uh, that's just very satisfying visually. It's like a little collection of Pokemon, but it also gets the point across. Like, this guy's humping a lot of gear, you know? <laughs> <laughs> visually, it takes up a lot of page space. It takes up a lot of weight. It's great. It's yeah. using the medium as it should be used. And it feels great. It's like it's like a nice it's not like your mind gets bored when you're reading the regular book. But when you're reading the graphic novel, you are like always seeing something new and something exciting and and different Mm -hmm. structures of panels on pages and and everything. Yeah. The one that got me was or the next one that got me was the blank thought balloon in Billy's head, just as a very simple, good (laughs) description of um, utter despair and depression to the point that you're just having, like your brain isn't thinking thoughts. It's just, you know, white noise. So they just have like a guy thinking, a soldier thinking, got to go West. Another soldier thinking, got to ditch the dead weight. And then Billy Pilgrim has a big thought balloon that has nothing in it. That's cool. And then, and I think that isn't that followed then Roland Weary's thought balloon becomes a series of like 20 thought balloons where it's a, a where scene he's of like him saving impressing everyone a lady. from the war. Yeah. 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 Like telling her how he won the war and then, yeah. At like a malt shop. Like it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, there was another one for me where uh, in the book, Vonnegut describes like the point past your own life as just violet light and a hum. And then they just keep mm. coming back to like a bar of violet light with a little humming wave through it 
for deaths or for big changes or for for other situations. Yeah. And they, of course, they always have a text box that says, so it goes, anytime death is referenced or anything dies. Yeah. Including like, I think there's a point where it's like the conversation died. So it goes shit like that. Um, (laughs) They also had, I, well, I found there are some things that just visually make more impact because of their nature, like the line, the, or the metaphor, extended metaphor he does about the train car becoming a giant animal. In went water and loaves of bread and sausage and cheese. Out came shit and piss and language. Um, When you actually see a drawing of shit (laughs) running (laughs) down the side of a train, you pause and think, God, how awful that experience must have been. Uh, In a way that I think just the words don't necessarily do. Like the fact that they made it an elongated panel, therefore making you... You know, if you know how your eyes work when you're reading a comic page, the longer the panel, the more time it sort of represents in your brain space. And uh, making the shit running down the side of the train a really long panel in the middle of a page was like, yeah, yeah, that's impactful. I feel bad. I feel really bad. (laughs) Works for me. Yeah, you can't just go past it. I even like just the pure visual impact of this book gives an entire two pages to one look at Dresden from above and then that same Mm -hmm. amount of space to blown up Dresden. And like, I've read this book so often and have also just had it described or, or mentioned to me as like, yeah, the Dresden book, like the Dresden blows up book, but like they can bother Mm -hmm. to draw it here and they can do it in a way that's really evocative, especially after you've been blowing through all these tiny little panels the whole time. Uh, And like you mentioned, they, they do several because, well, because Trout is always drawn as like a comic within a comic, like a pulp magazine comic. Yeah. But um, they go beyond that. There's the I really liked the sequence where in the book, Kurt is describing running a film in reverse and bombs going from the ground up into the air, up into airplanes, going to a factory where people work to dismantle them and bury the components in the ground so they can never hurt anyone ever again. Brilliant. One of the most beautiful metaphors ever in a book, I think. But uh, rather than doing it as a film strip, they do it as classic storyboards. So like, if you were to see the way storyboards are drawn, they have this particular grid with lines underneath it where you have notes for what the shot should be mm-hmm. and it's usually drawn with black lines with blue lines that represent motion and that's how film storyboards are usually like laid out and they do it that whole extended metaphor as two or three pages of film storyboard and i thought that was really really cool uh and yeah. there's other examples too like they found they went out of their way to as alex said like cover different styles and it's really like a multimedia experience in some ways that's exactly right. It, it jumps to everything they can like that. There's even like just typewritten mm-hmm. pages of war reports that that feel dry in a way that I found impactful. It's like, yeah, it's just like a little typewritten page where an Air Force guy says, yeah, we had to blow up Dresden. Makes sense. And that's in the novel, too. It just like feels flatter in a powerful way, especially that's like bold and cool in a graphic novel where theoretically you need to make it as exciting as possible all the time like to jump to right. a plain typewritten page is neat like that, that's a nice sacrifice i just love adaptations about stuff you're familiar with because you get to see the interplay between the two mediums because like it's also interesting to note when it 
is better as a book or for me, I think it's admirable innovation to do. They did several, they did a thing repeatedly. That's kind of cool, which is you meet a character and it's kind of like run Lola run. If you've seen that when she bumps into people and you see a little schmear of their life, um, it says like Roland weary in three panels or, or Paul Lazaro in three panels. Yeah. And I just got to say, it was interesting to me how it worked reverse uh, it, you know, vice versa in this case, the Paul Lazaro one where he feeds springs to a dog and kills the dog as a drawing. I'm like, yeah, it's a drawing of a dead dog, man. When you read that, <laughs> yeah. it's like hauntingly, brutally disturbing. It's so upsetting just in book form or for me, at least my experience was when left to my pure imagination, just the sentence, so he fed the dog some meat with bed springs in it and the dog died, is like, oh my God. But a drawing <laughs> of a dead dog, a little less. It takes the sting out a little bit <laughs> to visualize it. Man, I I ran into that too, especially the the way it was drawn. And, and maybe that's just the nature of it, trying to keep it realistic. Like It was hard for me to tell what he was putting in the meat in the panel where he was rigging the meat mm. with metal. And then like later yeah. they describe it. But in the moment, I was like, wait, the dog's just dead? Because I didn't quite remember that element of the novel. And right. you're right. Yeah, in, in the novel, just you're, I guess everything where with the novel where you illustrating it yourself in your head can be more powerful, that hits really hard as a novel, mm -hmm. the dog murder. It's like, oh, no, I had to do yeah. that my, with my brain pen? No, stop it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A dog thing, there, there are a lot of like little Easter eggs of darkness in the, in the panels that in some cases hit me harder. And one was when you see Billy Pilgrim's house, when he's an optometrist and doing well, there's like one tiny little insert of a dog's grave. And it's just a gravestone that says spot a good boy. And the, the yeah. graphic novel like does a little insert of the gravestone and then does a little, so it goes on top of it. That is like mm -hmm. just so tossed aside, but it's like, Oh yeah, there's just like ambient death in the world with our pets and stuff. Yep. That's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And they, yeah, they make great use of silences where you're allowed to add something and it's not technically you didn't change Vonnegut's words. You didn't like <laughs> mess with it. It's still a faithful adaptation, but you just took a visual beat to do something that technically is additive. One mm. I really liked was when he, after the Tralfamadorian or however I should say it, explains how they see time. It just has a four panel sequence where it shows Billy Pilgrim looking up at the stars and it shows a star field is panel two. Panel three is the Tralfamadorian turns to look at what he's looking at and it shows the stars, but they are represented as a bunch of diffuse wavy lines as if you were seeing the entire stars yeah. traveling life cycle like you know as if it were smeared because the star is traveling around and you see all time at once just a visual way to represent. Hey, this is what stars would look like if you were Tralfamadorian. We're allowed to do this. This is not changing what <laughs> Kurt wrote. It's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm I'm really enjoying imagining them thinking of pauses as their big opportunities. Yeah, or wordless sections as their big opportunities. Yeah, because they yeah. With, if you have especially a highly verbal writer like Vonnegut, those are your spots you can do the most, I guess, as someone carrying it forward. Or the when he challenges you, like the spot when he says, uh, when they say 
Tralfamadori and art, which is from the book. That would have been so exciting to me as the artist. Um, they <laughs> describe, Kurt describes Tralfamadori and art, and it's like a bunch of small items composed together, placed side by side that you're supposed to view at once and come away with some instinctive feeling of a, a larger meaning. Yeah. And I'm like, man, that's a crazy prompt to get as an artist. And they kind of nailed it. That those, that <laughs> two page spread is very cool. Every I really yeah. got lost in those little abstract patterns that they came up with. Yeah, it's like 20 or 30 separate little drawings of mm -hmm. a lot of like natural processes, maybe, but also a lot of like bursts of light and shapes and a few mechanical looking things. And it's just like it looks like a set of processes that happen in life and i mean life in like the biggest way like just existence includes some of these things and that's the book like primordial things yeah yeah like oh that's roughly the shape of a virus or that oh, looks like a cell splitting or oh that's just a cylinder in space so you're like okay basic shapes it's cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know I don't know how much you could get out of multiple pieces of Tralfamadorian art. It only really has one trick, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. And good adapting, not coming back to it. Yeah. It's just what it is. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, I realize Kurt's just so good. You guys, I was just taking <laughs> close up pictures of the lines and I'm like, well, that's the same as the book. That doesn't really, um, but we've already basically said it, but I think the last thing that I saved that I wanted to mention was how much I enjoyed that Kilgore Trout, whose short stories repeatedly come up, uh, as stories within stories that are basically little jokes that Kurt likes to make that make some sardonic point about human nature. Like, uh, here's a trout story. There was a money tree. Uh, everyone fought under it so much their blood nourished the roots of the money tree. Get it? People are shit. <laughs> like that's a <laughs> trout story. And um, they did them all as like these pulpy polka dot, you know, halftone printed like comics within the comic that are really great. Like the gutless wonder and uh, the money tree are just really cool sequences. But I think that's all I really wanted to call out oh one little thing i liked but just yeah. the thing just has a lot of panache but a uh, simple thing when after they're all starving when billy pilgrim has a spoonful of the enriched vitamin syrup for pregnant ladies and yeah. he, his whole body turns the same warm orange color that the syrup is and then a guy pokes his head and is like you're not supposed to be doing that and he goes you have some and he has it and his body turns orange i thought that was just like that's good cartooning you know what i mean it's just basic good visualization of concepts and uh there's a lot of that all throughout which I would totally expect from the guy who wrote Dinosaur Comics. It makes it's all coming together. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> right, from T Rex doing the same thing forever to this. It adds yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> well, also it explains that weird section in the middle where Kurt's cabin gets crushed by a giant foot. You're like, what was that about? <laughs> oh, and I guess I guess the black panels at the end, but I don't know. At this point, I'm sorry. That's the one that I'm like, I've seen that. A lot, a lot of people have done, what about a page of just black panels? I've seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that is a thing with the, the novel completes with a couple pages of just black panels, but in different configurations and shapes in a way where it really calls it out. 
uh, and then it leads with... I think that was the one thing where I was like, I could give or take that. If that was a movie, I'd be like, this is a little sweaty exposition-y right now. That was my, that was my, that's my only yeah. knock for the whole episode. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I, I also thought it could wrap there. Yeah. And I think I have like yeah. one other knock that we'll get into it a, a segment a little later here. Sure. Because yeah, I, I think from here, eventually we'll talk about the meat, but there are a few segments to do brief versions of specific to the graphic novel. And one of them is mm-hmm. Kurt Blurt Redux. Blurt Blurt Redux. Blurt Blurt, 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 Blurt Redux. Redux. It's a mashup. Because, <laughs> yeah, in our past episode, we talked about our most absolute favorite Kurt lines. And, and here we can talk about if any of them, like, you know, hit us differently or hit us in a more powerful way with this uh, this medium. And, like, an immediate one for me is that they, before the novel starts, pulled out a few quotes and just nice little pages as you get into the author page and and like Library of Congress information and stuff at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And one of them is this quote, and I asked myself about the present, how wide it was, how deep it was, how much was mine to keep, end quote. And I think that's my favorite quote of the whole novel. And so I was thrilled that was like front loaded Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. the the people who wrote this and adapted it. Like they liked it too. Really cool. Well, I'm yeah, this is just a line that works in it. It doesn't matter. You can write it on a page and I will quote it on a podcast. Well, here we are, Mr. Pilgrim, trapped in the amber of the moment. There is no why. Yeah. Uh, amazing. I could tattoo that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Leave enough space on your penis for this additional tattoo, folks. Because mm. if you go spiraling around <laughs> the shaft, you can get the most in. Hot tip. Yeah. <laughs> Also, hot tip, don't tattoo the tip. That's a whole different ballgame. You Earthlings are the great explainers, explaining why this event is structured as it is, telling how other events may be achieved or avoided. And then I like to pair that with another one, which Mm -hmm. is uh, the the Trout Famidorian saying, that is another thing humans, that is another thing Earthlings might learn to do if they tried hard enough. Ignore the awful times and concentrate on the good ones. That's one of those... Yeah. There's a few primordial things that as I age, I realize that's true and it clicks and it stays true forever. <laughs> like one of them is it is what it is, which sounds like it's meaningless. But if you meditate on it long enough, it's it's really true. There's a lot of wisdom in it is what it is. Um, yeah. But there's also a lot of wisdom in ignore bad stuff and focus on good stuff. You're like, surely life can't be that simple, <laughs> but you can train your brain to do that and you'll have a much better time. It's a good technique. Focus on good stuff. Ignore bad stuff. It's dumb and it works. It's very wise. Yeah, you're just like allowed to do that. There's no rule against it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's about like letting go. Yeah. Uh, A flip of that truly horrible bad stuff that jumped for me more is just like the entire Roland weary description of his favorite torture that he would do to someone while they're walking through the snow. Like the novel, this graphic novel like shows you every little beat of it and everything. And like, yeah, it's a thing like some of the other stuff we mentioned where, Oh, that just hits like a lot harder visually for some reason versus the, the dog thing for some reason hit me more in the novel, but weary's torture. I think I kind of like white knuckled through in the novel and it's just harder in the graphic novel. Yeah, that was brutal. Another similar one that I thought the graphic novel zhuzhed up or like made it more brutal in a way was when 
Edgar Derby, is elected the leader of the prison group in the train because oh. someone has to negotiate with the German soldiers. And he's thinking to himself in a thought bubble, like as if he's telling his wife at home, there was an election at noon today. And guess what? Like, cause he was elected leader and it's right next to a panel of them hauling a corpse out of the train and leaving it to rot on a hillside and seeing the fact that a comic page allows you to much like someone who's unstuck in time, which is why comic is the perfect medium for this. See <laughs> multiple things. Cause you know, panels represent different points in time, but as your eyes wander, the comic page allows you to view a multiplicity of events at once. That is one of the, magic tricks of comics as a medium that the artists will sometimes play with. Mm. And I think even though technically the way you're supposed to be reading the comic is he thought that then later there was a body rotting on a hill. Really your eyes are taking in both at once. And that's, there's a resonance there that is obvious and powerful. Yeah. Uh, the guy thinking, man, when I get home, I'm going to tell her I was elected leader of the shit train when <laughs> <laughs> they were like hauling a dead body out. It works so well. Yeah. And, and it's, isn't it coming off of, there's a panel where they ask the entire group of soldiers to elect somebody. And then the soldiers are just silent until one of them says, I like real small and sad. And like, <laughs> yeah, that was the yeah, election. Exactly. Like we're not, <laughs> we, we very exactly. visually got a sense of it not being exciting. But then he's like, Margaret, I've done it in his little imaginary letter. Oh, poor guy. Mm -hmm. Well, and then, of course, the real tragedy is he's also like, and Margaret, we're safe now. The war's over. And you're like, this guy gets shot. We already know. Kurt told us ahead of time. Yeah. No mysteries. Yeah. Yeah. Another a death thing that it really, the line especially really struck me more is, there's a part where after the war, Billy Pilgrim is visiting his mother as she's on pretty much her deathbed, like she's going to pass away. And the line she says is, how did I get so old? And she like mm -hmm. can't speak very loudly. So it's a long buildup of like beckoning in Billy closer and closer and closer. And then it's just this tiny little speech bubble out of her little old mouth. And it really, uh, really had hard. Yeah, maybe because I've had elderly relatives pass away and so on. But uh, but yeah, that was that was yeah. a meaningful moment in a way that it had never hit me the same in the, the novel. Uh, last one for me is the addition of the fact that when Billy is looking at Kilgore Trout pulp comics in the window of the porn shop, in the reflection of the store, you can see the New York City like news ticker and backwards, oh, yeah. like spelled out backwards because it's a reflection. It says Martin Luther King has been and it's cut off, but you know what it says. And there's just an arrow to it that says so it goes. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, man. Rough cool. That's a ballsy addition. That's a pretty, like, we're adding ourselves into this now. Yeah. And that that's one of the first so it goes is where you don't immediately know why it's there because you have to read the words backwards and you're not thinking mm -hmm. about this being that that awful year where MLK and RFK are all killed. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's a whole yeah. boom. Yeah, whole surprise from the from the page. I think I think I only have one more. And it's a, a line that... I loved anyway, but getting to see it just somehow hit harder. It was when they're in the train cars in World War II, and Vonnegut's description is, when food came in, the humans were quiet and trusting and beautiful. They shared. And they do like a, just a really, really like positive frame of them being that way, but still in the same, mm -hmm. like throughout this graphic novel, the war is very grayed out color-wise, and then, and then 
back home is more colorful and science fiction is super colorful, but like it's still gray, but their their activities and faces really worked for me as they as they shared the food in the car. Yeah. Pretty colors too. Gray use of like they they sort of if you flip through it rapidly, you can see how they yeah. picked color palettes for each time period. They have a distinct like Tralfamador is purple, you know. Really simple effective. stuff, but yeah. but effective, yeah. And uh, with effective art, we can get into another sort of mini segment here. It's called Recurring Characters Redux. They're back, back again. They're back, back again. Redux, they're back, back again. All our friends are here now. (laughs) And because in the we've we've talked in the past about which characters are in which books, but uh, this is a good time for especially talking about what the art and the adaptation do with in some cases, characters we've read about, I don't know, a dozen times with Trout and, and many times with others. Slash you know. Jesus. Jesus is in a lot of Kurt books. He's in boy, this oh one boy. a couple times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> When's he going to pay some royalties for using that guy, right? Exactly. Jeez Louise. The Pope's getting robbed. Uh, yeah, the church <laughs> needs that money, too. They're hurting. Yeah, big time. Um, <laughs> one, one broad thing that jumped out to me Toward the start of this graphic novel, there's a page with, I think it's nine different characters just all in a grid where they say, like, here's part of our cast. And they just show them very plainly. That's the one. Yeah. But I feel like pretty much every character is drawn in a not silly way. Like, it's not that there's no humor to it. It's just that they make them all, like, pretty grounded in, in a way that I thought was positive. They, they all look like human beings with human bodies. Yeah, Paul Lazaro is drawn to look like, well, that guy's an asshole. Like, and yeah. I don't know if he really looks like that, but <laughs> he definitely looks uh, like a skull, like a rat skull. And then he turns out to be that kind of guy. Um, yeah. Edgar Derby has the big square lantern jaw that feels very appropriate. Uh, and Roland Weary looks like the kid who would have Napoleon complex. They they look true to character. I The one that really bumped me, and I don't know why, is Kilgore Trout. That's just not what I think Kilgore Trout looks like. Oh I don't know God, if you same. felt that way. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was like, not too much of a Santa, too much of a, a Captain yeah. Haddock almost, not into it. That's the that's the reference for me, Captain Haddock. Yeah, <laughs> wow. for sure, from Tintin. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but other than that, I was pretty okay with... I guess, oh, only because there was a whole book about him. I also don't think that's what Elliot Rosewater looks like at all. Oh, wow. That is not. I I like half felt that way because I I imagined him more blimpy and more hairless. But I think it's partly because I had an old paperback of God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, where he's drawn that way on it. And then I like got used to this Elliot as as I saw it. I've never had a an illustration of him like come across my desk. So I'm purely is like oh, theater wow. of the mind. Yeah. But do you know, Tom Poston He's an old character actor. He was on the Bob Newhart show a lot. I always thought Tom Poston for Elliot Rosewater, but then maybe that's just me, but I'm glad we agree on the trout. The trout thing's weird. Um, the trail Famidorian. Perfect. Looks exactly like I thought. Yeah. There's all, there's one like tiny little detail. I love where, it's one of the pulp comics. It's the pulp comic of the gospel from outer space, the Trout story. Mm-hmm. And it's a tiny thing, but I noticed like they show the cover of the pulp comic and it's a Trout from Adorian with like jagged teeth and sharp fingernails. 
and then mm-hmm. inside of the comic it's less uh, aggressive like that and it's perfect it's mm. perfect true to life of like the covers of science fiction and pulp stuff were all more aggressive and more wild than the contents than the actual it was contents, amazing yeah. that they did that loved it that's a very nuanced little touch yeah that's cool yeah, yeah the bible too also in the porn store window you can see some of the titles of the other oh. of other trout stories that we don't actually get into that are from other vonnegut books Oh, nice little I Easter that. eggs. We're going to go back. Yeah. <laughs> and some that they clearly just made up. Like there's one that just says leather orgasms. I don't think that was a trout story in Vonnegut canon, if I recall. <laughs> yeah. Probably not with Jesus as the main character or anything. Yeah, no. that probably didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> the other, I think the other character art things I was most excited about, because he is a recurring character, Howard W. Campbell Jr., who's the main character of Mother Night. The American and Nazi. And then is an, a, a like, yeah. brief American Nazi in this. They draw him in I, what I think is a true to Vonnegut's description version of his like free American Corps outfit. Like It's a special Nazi uniform for a what ends up being theoretical unit of Americans fighting for the Nazis. But it's like very red, white, and blue and with a cowboy hat in a way that for some reason hit me a lot harder here. Like I thought they did a brilliant job of what would be the Nazi uniform for Americans if they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very Texan, no offense, Texas. <laughs> and cause I think, I think like other countries stereotype us as Texans. If they were like, I had, yeah, a, that's what I mean. I, yeah. It's like, yeah, Texas represents America in some quarters <laughs> of the world. Yeah. Like I had a British friend in college who claimed to be amazing at doing an American accent. And then he would just do a Texas accent. And I was like, there are more of us, man. I, you, come on. You've been here. <laughs> Howdy, y'all. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the other character art thing that hit me the hardest is because like you mentioned, there are those this is the character in three panels, like sections for stuff. Mm -hmm. And when we meet Roland Weary, he's an adult and kind of a jerk in the, in the army, but Roland Weary in three panels is him as a kid getting like physically abused by his father. And that's obviously heartbreaking, but the way they drew kid weary where he's like skinny and, and harmable and vulnerable and not a jerk. Like for some reason that struck me way harder than, this thing that was described pretty much the same way in the novel, just like for some reason, mm-hmm. it's probably just a gut animal brain thing of seeing him as a kid. I sympathized a lot more sure. and that was smart of him to include it. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And then within this mini segment is the mini segment of Kurt Cameo Redux. Kurt Cameo Redux. Who? He's back. Kurt? Where? Kurt. Him. Oh my God. It's Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Because, of course, Kurt Vonnegut is one of the recurring Kurt Vonnegut characters. And, uh, right. And he's, I like that he's in basically the first page of the graphic novel, because we see the the thing that he writes in his book where he's at Bernard O'Hare's house with his wife, Mary, talking about how he's going to write this. Yeah. And he also, uh, at one point, calls Billy Pilgrim and it's a wrong number. And I like that they <laughs> didn't show Kurt in that case. They just had an arrow to the phone and said, that was Kurt. Wrong number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> works for me yeah and then uh and a couple times they draw him in the war like and it's i guess like kurt vonnegut is the real person i know the face of the best in this book and they mm-hmm. do it accurately and within their art style like like the the drawing of 
Kurt as a young man in the military shedding his brains out matches the little like picture of Kurt in the army that I've seen. It's that face, you know, easy to execute, but they did it well, I thought. Agree. The one, uh, like the one character thing that bumped me though is another Kurt cameo we get is that a few times in the middle of the book, it's Kurt Vonnegut and Billy Pilgrim like sitting in folding chairs talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And that threw me a little bit as a way of depicting this story because I, I've i never truly imagined it as like <laughs> yeah. Kurt Vonnegut interviewing Billy Pilgrim, even though we know Billy Pilgrim's made up. Where is that space? Why is that happening? This is not Princess Bride. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I didn't totally understand what that was supposed to be or what it was supposed to mean or or what, but I didn't let those stick in my brain. I just read them and was like, oh, whatever. Those images don't count. <laughs> I agree because I don't. Yeah, I don't envision Billy Pilgrim as having ever told his story to Kurt Vonnegut. I think that's odd. Vonnegut's just omniscient. Don't you know that? He's just he's our <laughs> grandfather in the sky who sees all. He doesn't need to interview Billy Pilgrim, you know, right. Feels weird. Yeah, because that's the dynamic in those little scenes, too, is Kurt interviewing him like a reporter. And it doesn't like he's taking notes for this book, which I get it. It's meta, but it's just not what I envisioned. (laughs) Yeah, same. Right on. Yeah. And then one last mini segment before the meet. Let's get into Vana what? Redux. Vana what? What? (laughs) I thought of home improvement just there. I really like it. Of course. (laughs) Of course, as you should. Let's just Glass switch breaking. gears. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> more power. Vonnegut, more. You know what would help Vonnegut? More power. <laughs> I don't even know what that would look like. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and we, we got into sort of the things we bumped on uh, as far as Vonnegut's choices with the novel when we did the novel. I feel like here with this graphic novel, they mostly tone down or avoid a lot of that stuff. I appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think the big, if I remember right, the biggest thing we bumped on with the novel was the treatment of female characters, uh, especially Billy's wife, Valencia, where it mostly focuses on her weight and how complaining she is, according to Kurt. And, and so you can't, that is fundamental to the story. So you can't totally take it out. It's still in here. If you're like, if you read this graphic novel and said the only real female character was this complainy lady who killed herself yeah um with the exhaust thing in the car uh yeah that's a, still a fair criticism i do think they did their best to alleviate it uh you know this is why intersectionality is the thing we all have unexamined biases so did kurt vonnegut i definitely think it's still in there Valencia is like not a great character in the same way that to this day, I'll see a Chris Nolan movie and go, there weren't really any good female characters in that. Were there? This has that going on. Does not pass the Bechdel (laughs) test at all. And yeah, and they like, I feel like they make Montana wild hack, like 1% more human, but she's still a porn star Mm -hmm. in space. She's still just a porn star in space with very little to say. Yeah. (laughs) Annie still does the thing where, It's interesting for someone who's so empathetic. It's such an exercise in imagine how traumatic that was. Imagine the Dresden bombing and how traumatic that was. And he gets you there. Uh, It's interesting that with Montana Wildhack, her experience is she appears naked on an alien planet. And a guy there immediately goes, we're in a zoo. If it's okay, they want me to have sex with you. 
And she doesn't treat that as traumatic. She goes like, that's interesting. And then we cut to the future and she's pregnant. No, let's <laughs> dig into that. That would go weird. Like that would be a whole thing. You know what I mean? That is traumatic yeah. in and of itself. And I think deserves like it's due weight and doesn't get it. So Vana, what? <laughs> that That's such a good point. And, and also a, um thinking now about what you said about the silences and that being such an opportunity for this writer and this artist to to add things, comment on things. And like like there could have we could have had a whole quiet series of panels where they like start not hating each other or start talking to each other where they keep to different sides of the dome and they have a line they don't cross. And then slowly they have to cooperate and then months pass and then they relax. Yeah, yeah. I could totally see something like that, but. Um, you know, next time, get us to write your graphic novel. <laughs> yeah, publisher Boom Studios. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, now let's get into the segment that, you know, uh, is is potentially a whole bunch of the show. The meat. Chop it a chop, chop it a chop, chop it a chop, 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 grill, grill, grill. Is it though? <laughs> I feel like this meat will be smaller than our us- than our meats have been in the past, only because it may you be. could see our Slaughterhouse Five episode if you want my thoughts on <laughs> vast meat. Yeah, like Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I do think there's room here to talk about what the adaptation does specifically, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. The first question I, I think is one we've kind of answered as we have gone, but. The question of does this graphic novel work? Like, is it basically an effective adaptation? I would say yes. I, I think it translates the novel yeah. extremely effectively and finds some exciting ways to do it, too. Also, a phenomenal proof of concept for the act of adapting current novels into graphic novel form. It made me excited about, uh, like, uh, yeah. Bluebeard, the one about the artist, would be so amazing. There's a bunch that would be amazing in visual form. It worked and it worked and made me excited. I hope more happen. Because another another thing I wanted to see what you thought Ed, is like, like, I feel like graphic novels are the ideal way to turn these books into something besides just a print novel, because movies and TV can be so hard to put together. And at at the moment, based on the limited knowledge we have, like the recent attempts to do that are kind of stuck in the mud. Like there was an announced Sirens of Titan movie in 2017 by Dan Harmon. No new news since 2017. Uh, there was supposed to be a Noah Hawley Cat's Cradle TV show, and there's new news from Deadline that the Disney-Fox merger messed that up. Graphic novel, you can just have an amazing writer and artist do it on their own time and however they want to. And then you can do it this really cool way. I am dying for a Sirens movie, though. I think I'm on record as saying that oh, for in sure. the <laughs> very first episode of this podcast, but that's all I want. is a, We got to play. I'd settle for a graphic novel. But I want a movie. There should be a big budget Sirens of Titan movie. Come on. Yeah. It'll happen before I die, I bet. I think Kurt will get his day in on the screen. But in the meantime, you're right. A graphic novel is such a lower bar. Uh, and, you know, it's basically a storyboard with some added bells and whistles that movies can't do. So I'm into it. Yeah, very high payoff for what it is. And, yeah. But yeah, and, and I think we've said on the show that yeah, dreaming of a Sirens of Titan movie is like the genesis of the podcast. Like I was wearing a Sirens t-shirt and you said, I, I want to make that movie. And I was like, cool. And then <laughs> yeah. that was how we did it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there is something magic about 
I guess especially movies. I feel like I love how much TV we have access to, and it's also very, like, throw it on from a streaming service. Like, a, a truly great Vonnegut movie, mm-hmm. uh, that would be something. Yeah. Be, yeah, hard to beat. Who would you throw at that? I could see Edgar Wright. Mm, yeah. Who would direct Sirens? If it's not us, which it should be. <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting thought experiment. I also love animation, and I don't know if that pushes us too much mm. toward a graphic novel ultimately, but yeah. but I don't know, just the ability to do science fiction with that. Very exciting. Pixar, Disney Pixar's Sirens <laughs> of Titan. Now, Disney Pixar's Mother Night, that's the one I want. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for real, there there does need to be a renaissance of Kurt getting adapted into any medium. I just think this proves more than ever before that it there's still a lot of vibrant conversation to be had from Kurt Vonnegut's work, and I think that adapting it into different media is the way to continue that and keep it alive. Uh, and I don't want to – I'll let you ask your next question, but the next question on the doc, I'm like, kind of maybe, yeah, because <laughs> uh, if I read this – if I just think adaptations don't detract from the original. If anything, this made me want to reread all of Kurt's books again. Like, you know, it just whetted my appetite mm. for more in a good way. It was, I got a lot of excitement out of this. Yeah. And because mm-hmm. the next question is like, is this adaptation so good it could just replace the novel? Like, are we done with it? And I would say probably not. But it it is about as effective, honestly. Like, it's it's a very, very valid way to tell this story and experience it. It's great. Totally assign this graphic novel the summer between uh, junior high and high school when you have to read four books or whatever, and one of them, Sirens of Titan. Assign the graphic novel instead. Your students will appreciate it. A, ho- a healthy chunk of them will be moved, I bet, to read the original and or other Kurt Vonnegut books after enjoying the graphic novel. It's a, it's a good way to get kids hooked on Kurt. I, I'm all for it. <laughs> but yeah. replacing, I mean, that's a... I don't know about that. Yeah. It's a bit of a straw man you constructed there. (laughs) (laughs) I was sort of taking a big swing with that question. I was like, maybe we check and probably not. Yeah. Maybe we check. Okay. We checked. Yeah. (laughs) And also there's uh, the one interview with Ryan North about this is I think interesting and fits this because he said, quote, my overarching goal with the book is to make it feel at home in the medium like it was born there first. So if someone had somehow never heard of Slaughterhouse-Five, they could read this comic and think, oh, wow, that was a great comic, and not, oh, weird, what an odd way to experience the prose novel, which I will now check out to complete the story I've experienced, end quote. So he was really going for, like, as effective of a graphic novel as possible in a way that can stand on its own. And I I think he pretty much got there. Which is funny because... The graphic novel at the very beginning draws attention to the fact that it's an adaptation, so it does invite you to think of it as a weird adaptation of the thing, but I found that in spite of that meta shout-out at the beginning, it did exactly what he wanted. I got lost in it, and it felt authentic as if the comic were organically created as a comic. It totally totally achieved that. Yeah. Uh, And I don't think you could do that with every book by a long shot, no matter how good you were as a graphic novelist. I just think there are books that 
they work as pros and it would be dumb as visual. Like all you would be doing is here's illustrations of the thing that the book described. And it was better in your imagination because your imagination's so powerful. This is the rare case. And Vonnegut's the rare author where it actually behooves us to ask questions like, wow, is graphic novel the perfect way to, to do Kurt? Because it really works. It's very peanut butter and chocolatey. Yeah. More than I expected it to be. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it just flows very effectively into this new bucket. Like you can just do that. Great. I think my next pick would be Breakfast of Champions. I'd love to see a graphic novel of Breakfast of Champions. Oh, in man. This, in the same, like very similar style. Would sing. Yeah. That, at Cat's Cradle. Especially mm-hmm. there's like that chunk of Cat's Cradle where they talk about how book indexing lets you do a whole book and then you just do the indexing on the page and everything. And oh boy. Yeah, there, there's several Vonnegut novels I want to see this with. Yeah, great. Yeah, graphic novels showing or like a image um, overview map showing how the Ice Nine traveled like to this estuary, <laughs> to this body of water, to this ocean. Yeah, Could do well. so many cool things. <laughs> also, I want to see what an albatross canopy actually looks like. <laughs> that haunts me. I eating albatross meat. Why? I pretty much don't know what a canapé is, too. So that would just be yeah. educational, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a picture, please. Like, oh, it's a little morsel of food. Who knew? <laughs> Thought it was a car. <laughs> but yeah, and then the the like last meet we had here is, and I don't, this might be hard to answer, but the question is like, is this graphic novel trying to say something that a novel doesn't already say? Or, or wouldn't say, you know, like I I think they're working so hard to be faithful to it that it's mostly the same messages and ideas, partly, but I, I don't really know. I agree. I think if it were to balk at something Vonnegut was saying or try and comment upon or like evolve the message or transcend what Vonnegut was saying, we would have seen things like Montana Wild Hack being treated differently uh, yeah. or Valencia Merble being used differently, structurally speaking. Although this shows a lot of innovation and a lot of improv, not improvisation, because obviously it's all pre-planned, but like, you know what I mean by musical improvisation? Like between the notes that were already established, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of cool things they thought of. The notes are there. They did not. No, it's not a deconstruction or a reconstruction of the thing. It is an adaptation. And it's not the movie adaptation, which is not actually a faithful adaptation. (laughs) It's a faithful adaptation. Yeah, folks don't remember on our main Slaughterhouse Five episode, we also talk about the 1972 movie by George Roy Hill, where, mm. where yeah, I think Michael, you point out some stuff that the movie does that just throws out Vonnegut's book a little bit. Um, but this is like really, really, really translating what he was saying uh, pretty faithfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't have to cut for time. You know, that's another reason graphic novel may be the perfect adaptive medium because. If you did, let's say you did one of Kurt's things as a film and the executive at some point said, oh, you got to cut all the the whole subplot with Echolalia because there's no time or whatever. And you're like, man, but this is a Kurt Vonnegut thing. I don't think we should be taking shit out willy nilly. You know what I mean? Uh, so I like that the graphic novel, I don't know how much, how long of a movie this graphic novel would have equated to, or if it would have been exactly 90 minutes or two hours, 
because oh, wow. I read it in a few sittings, you know? Yeah, right. It's right, good right. that it can be the right length, whatever, which is whatever length it needs to be to complete the adaptation. I like that there's no arbitrary, like, constraints on that. The thing looming in my mind is, like, a week ago I saw the uh, Dune movie, and I've read the Dune book. There's going to be a second Watching it Dune tonight. movie. Oh, tonight. Cool, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, they clearly are, like, trying to be smart about making the book into two entire movies because of time constraints both directions like they want to get as much as they can in and then also they just have to Mm -hmm. do a first movie that's just the first half of the book and then us people who've read it are like i know what's coming next but everybody else is probably like what and uh an exec might have been like just make it one movie stupid cut the cut the boring worm part or some other terrible studio note Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) like yeah (laughs) Uh, make the spice not flow. I don't need the, uh, <laughs> I don't think we need that. Yeah. Also the one other thing, and I think it's that they were in keeping with the novel, but like there's so much discussion around this novel, around the PTSD element and like whether it's all in Billy's head or it's actually sci-fi is real or back and forth. And I, right. I feel like the graphic novel doesn't take a super strong stance on that in a way that fits the novel. So that's cool. Makes sense. Takes the same stance the novel did, intentionally ambiguous, yeah. yeah. So it's a good way to go. I choose to believe it all really happened because I like sci-fi better than I like psychological dramas. <laughs> <laughs> Read it however you want. Yeah, it's still, and you can. Yeah, yeah exactly. They've adapted it where If you, you like can. the Fight Club twist, it's there if you want it. <laughs> you can even, it's a graphic novel. You can doodle Fight Club characters into it. Like, you can put Edward Norton in. You can put Brad Pitt in. Yeah. If you get a pen, you know. Movie, they'll tell you to stop drawing on the screen. They'll be like, Mm -hmm. this was a very expensive screen. (laughs) You speak as someone who sounds like they know that from experience. I I can go back to Alamo anytime, all right? And anybody say it otherwise (laughs) (laughs) has been misinformed. Alamo. (laughs) Craft House? There's got to be a pun there somewhere. (laughs) Craft House. Arts and crafts yeah, yeah. is what I was going. That's yeah, the okay, screen. you got yeah. it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, well, uh, there's there's not too many segments left. Let's get into a next segment called uh, Raya North and Albert Montez grades. Not good. <laughs> no, it's not. I good. mean, do 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 music uh, about the thing, <laughs> but not great. No, this used to be Vana grades, major downgrade. It's now Ryan North and Albert Montegrades, <laughs> or Montez grades. Yeah, because this is a uh, you know before we would rate Kurt Vonnegut on his work as he himself graded himself, mm-hmm. and there we have an Excel spreadsheet, or it's really a it's a Google Sheets, whatever that is. But we have it. You can look at all our grades for past books. Uh, this work is by different artists, Ryan North, Albert Montes. Uh, what kind of grade should we give this? I don't know who should go first. Well, are we doing letters or numbers? I don't even recall. I, Do you remember what we did back in the day? Yeah, because we're we're bouncing off Vonnegut's letter grades for himself in Palm Sunday. So I think we can do he letter did. grades here. That's right. Not, That's not right. like four out of five stars or whatever. Uh, but I, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I I meditated for 10 minutes and then let the grade come to me. And the grade that came to me is the same as the AV club. I gave it an A minus. We are in alignment. Yes. A minus. Ooh, yep. Triple A minus. 
<laughs> yeah, we've got, we'll link some outside reviews of this. The AV Club gave it an A minus and their main criticism, quote, the inclusion of so much of the text might result in a reader already familiar with the novel glossing over the speech captions, end quote, which I think is both fair and unavoidable. Like, and I, I think this is just yeah. like, this is a really, really, really effective adaptation and it's not such an effective adaptation that it's like better than a new Kurt book or something. For the record, the book Slaughterhouse Five, Alex gave an A and I gave an A plus. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so almost as good, but shouldn't replace it, I think. I think our grades, yeah. you know, are consistent with that. Yeah, like it's they they really did a wonderful job. I really don't have a ton of major wishes or things I'm mad about no. or something. And my critic I mean the A V Club that's technically true, or I guess, oh, that's valid, but that criticism didn't even occur to me till you brought it up. I don't really have a criticism as much as for something to be A+, plus, it has to inspire some kind of fee- indefatigable feeling in me where I, I pace around the house going like, Jen, you gotta look at this. This thing is so incredible, you know, and, and oh, wow. it didn't necessarily reach that threshold, but... Uh, solid, solid A minus, like a great thing that I read that I'm very happy about. <laughs> I even in, in real life, my partner, Brenda asked me about this and I told her, yeah, it's good. And did not force her to yeah, look at good. it or anything. Yeah. That, yeah that's so that's actually not a an thing A plus. <laughs> an A plus would be like, oh, read it. I'm not even going to ruin it. You just read it. You know, that would be an A plus. Right. So. Evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. But no major criticisms at all. Yeah, and I'm glad it exists. Like, it's good. It's it's, For it's sure. not like oh, big comics has ruined Vonnie. Like no, it's it's really cool. <laughs> no. This happens. It's good. Definitely made with care and love and respect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if people want other takes on it, Polygon.com did a review that said it might be better than the novel, so they disagree. Mm. And then uh, MonkeysFightingRobots.co <laughs> gave it a 4.3 out of five. And mostly praised the writing and was like more muted about the art. So. I thought they're like, dang, did you know this Slaughterhouse Five is is pretty good? <laughs> <laughs> Monkeys fighting robots just got around to it. <laughs> They've been unstuck in time for a great deal of <laughs> literary. They were history. busy fighting robots. Uh, yeah. yeah, the war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the war on robots had to be fought. <laughs> But yeah, and feels nice to be aligned. Cool thing. From here, next segment is a very fun segment called Related Reading. Flip, flip, flip. Flip, flip, flip. This flip, flip, is flip, my favorite books, books, books. segment. Relation, relation, relation. Oh, yeah. And yeah, this is the same as normally. It's just now we're relating things to the adaptation instead of the original. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these are uh, just, and I think we each have really one main one. But yeah, it's a book that jumps out as, if you like this, you might like that. Yeah, I got. I have one and only one. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Corrigan, the smartest kid on earth. Woo. It is also a graphic novel. Do you know this, Alex? I I read it because you recommended it to me, and you're oh, like a billion percent fantastic. right. It's the most accurate possible recommendation here. It's great. Such an incredibly good graphic novel. Quite quite a bit longer, um, because it was a series, but all yeah. collected into it's, one it's volume. It's huge, yeah, and really good. It's huge, and it's very grim and depressing and it's just a family drama and that is not even usually my cup of tea mm. but i just picked it up and could not stop because of the level of innovation visual innovation 
that it shows towards comics as a medium. It reinvents the wheel of what a comic can be so many times. It even has the paper doll trick that they do in this. It's just great. That's right, it does. And the main character looks exactly <laughs> like Stewie Griffin, and there was a lawsuit with, between the creator and Seth MacFarlane, which is fun. Oh, I did not know so that. So check out... Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Check out... Well, Seth MacFarlane has also admitted... Their, the quote is like, uh, uh, I could see why he thinks that. It does look exactly like Stewie Griffin. <laughs> or rather, Stewie Griffin looks exactly like Jimmy Corrigan. But oh. uh, yeah, Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth by Chris Ware. W-A-R-E. Great book. Yeah, it's I, I'm really glad I got to read it. Because yeah, it's, it's your, and, mm-hmm. and it is, because you put it in the doc here, and I was like, oh, that's the most aligned to this piece of work. These two are like... <laughs> It's it's it there they'd be because even though it is even though it was originally a comic from conception it feels like an adaptation of a novel because it's a, like a sad story about a guy reconnecting with his estranged father which is like novel territory usually uh, rather than comic book territory and it just <laughs> handles it really well and uh, and it's very the art style is more cartoony or strip friendly than it is photorealistic in a similar way uh, to Slaughterhouse Five. And mine, my related reading is is less of a perfect alignment fit, but it's a graphic novel called Bone Sharps, Cowboys, and Thunder Lizards. And one more time, Bone Sharps, Cowboys, and Thunder Lizards. It's by Jim Ottaviani, and the art is by a team called Big Time Attic. There's Xander Cannon and Kevin Cannon. But it's a graphic novel telling the story of late 1800s paleontologists. And their battle, it's two of them, and they have a feud and destroy each other's work. And it's a real historical story of guys trying to be the main dinosaur hunter in America. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, and I had never like, totally loved the story in regular historical print. And this graphic novel thrilled me as, as far as like a way to consume it and a way to experience it. So it's, it's a very cool like novelistic graphic novel. It's a good time. That's awesome. And then I have and just like an extra quote for the related reading, because my favorite Slaughterhouse-Five quote was, and I asked myself about the present, how wide it was, how deep it was, how much was mine to keep. And in like going through stuff, preparing for this, I stumbled on a Tennessee Williams quote that we can link because he, he said it in an interview. And what Williams said was, quote, we live in a perpetually burning building and what we must save from it all the time is love. End quote. Really just beautiful. And it, it sort of reminds me of that same vibe. So you can take that with you. Uh, my favorite film of all time, probably Synecdoche, New York, has that as a vis- oh. as a literalized metaphor, the woman who lives in a burning building her whole life. Wow, yeah. It's a great it's a great image. Yeah, good quote. Good poll. Now I'm tying it to that. That movie's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good, hard, challenging movie. And pretty good connection here, like about an artist, make, you know, seeing him make his stuff, you know, grapple with his life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Meta as hell. Yeah. Wow. Well, and I think I think we have one more segment for this this very special episode. The segment is Ooh. Vonnegut News. Bringing you the Vonnegut News. Whoosh. Whoosh. Limited amount of Vonnegut news right now, other than the news of this graphic <laughs> novel existing. But uh, if you happen to be listening to this on November 11th, there is free admission at the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library in Indianapolis today. Go enjoy that. 
Um, probably more useful news to you is they do an annual Night of Vonnegut fundraiser and event and really cool thing. That'll be April 10th of 2022. So that's coming up then. And then 2022 is Vonnegut's like centennial. He was born in 1922. So there will be a lot of things going on for that. And if I'm not mistaken, we have a little bit of yeah of pod fond news. And so, yeah, the other uh, exciting like Vonnegut's Vonnegut news is that we yeah. we have made this special episode because there's the exciting graphic novel. And then we think we're going to do another episode in addition. Another one. <laughs> is that who who says that is that dj khaled yeah dj khaled yeah i was like it. I you're still that. young you're I still cool for, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was like why have i danced to what michael just said that's weird uh, <laughs> yeah there's a there's an exciting nonfiction book on the way called the writer's crusade kurt vonnegut and the many lives of slaughterhouse five it's by an author named tom roston uh, and also the publisher very nicely at our request sent us copies. And so we we would love to like read that book and break it down for you. Uh, also, I know this one was a surprise, but that one, if you want to do the book club thing and like read ahead or something, if you want to, you can. Get it's it going. A, a nonfiction yeah. book. We're, we're probably going to get it out in like early 2022. We're not exactly sure when, but follow our, you know, socials and everything else for when that will happen. And if you're hearing this, you're probably still subscribed to the feed and stuff. So you'll see it. Great. It'll pop. It'll pop up. Yeah. And yeah, I guess we could talk about uh, news with ourselves, things we're working on, things people can hear and so on. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's that time already. Sure. Uh, Well played, Alex. And thank you for the opportunity (laughs) to self-promote. Yeah. I'm working on a few secret projects. Since we last checked in with the Vana Guys audience, the real big thing is I got a day job. I'm... Uh, video creator over at IGN now so you can find Ooh. me over at IGN if you're into video game type stuff because that's our beat and uh, if you're looking for anything else like um, you know the more cracked-esque uh, comedy stuff that I'm still doing in the margins that will all be over at patreon.com slash small beans and uh, I'm not gonna dig into particulars just go check it out there's a bunch of stuff there's always new stuff happening over there we're working on a movie we got a lot going on yeah, furry movie, right? That's not a secret. That's that's out there. Yep. Yeah. No, not at all. Publicly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very excited to be working on that. Yeah. Yeah. And folks check. And there's even like IGN stuff that is not just for video games, too, like that Star Trek video. And, and there's a lot there. Come from Oh, Michael. I'm honored that you saw that one. Yeah, that's uh, I like to think of it as cracks without jokes because they or you can you can do dad jokes. <laughs> But you know how Cracked was actually like edgy and actually funny, like mm-hmm. a sitcom would be funny, <laughs> and you would read articles and laugh because they said something dirty or clever. Um, IGN doesn't doesn't do that. It's just not their style. They're more straightforward. But if you liked the educational thinky part of Cracked, like interesting points, uh, there's a lot of that. So I still make cool videos with lots of interesting insights, and uh, just unleashed a big one about Star Trek captains that was a lot of fun. Up next, I have a 40 minute mini doc on the art of speed running and the history of that community. That's really cool. That's that's oh. what I'm working on currently. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't know much speed about it. Speed running is speed running is it's way it's just like one of those jobs that's way more fascinating than you think it is. There's a lot more detail and a lot more cool stuff going on. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. How about you, Alex? What do you got in the hopper? Yeah, so we the last one of these was in twenty eighteen. 
uh, and then been a while. the crack.com website got new management and then that new and current management fired me and just ended the show and didn't tell anybody. Uh, but I decided, hey, why don't I like uh, take some time for myself? And then from there, I said, why don't I make something new and something I've never done before? And so I'm making a podcast called Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Yay! We take one thing that people think is ordinary and then get into the history and the science and the, the stories that make it amazing. Yeah. And I think it's a I'm, I'm very excited about it. I think it's a cool show. You can find it at sifpod.fun or you can just search for it in feeds. If you search for secretly, you'll usually find it in your podcast player. Um, and Michael's very nicely guested a couple some... times, too. And so people oh, can hear him being very funny on there. Thank you. I was not re- going to refer to myself, but I did want to say you've been pulling amazing guests, dude. Really cool. It's been lucky. It's, it's been cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the McElroy brothers came through. Many of our old friends came through. Awesome. Uh, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. Robin Ince beamed in from the UK because we're in the future. Very cool. Science fiction. You can just <laughs> you could be in different countries when you tape. It's true. Nothing stops you. Heck yeah. Did we do it? I think it's I'm. I'm really, really excited we did it, man. That was like, it's because it, uh, you know, we didn't have so many books to, to, to choose from or do it with. And now we do. And, and it, but it's a thrill to get to do it again, man. It's been great. Absolutely. Yeah. It all came flooding back. It's like riding a bike. <laughs> it's like riding a tandem bike with you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Who's in front? Who's on the back? Who knows? I, d- I don't know, but we're reading, which is dangerous. Should, yeah, it's ill-advised. Somehow we're just running people over, even though it's just a bike. Mm-hmm. Like, just a wake of destruction. Yeah. <laughs> Blue beard coming through. <laughs> Out of the way. Uh, you got a problem? Talk to my friend. He's reading uh, Mother Night. Dang it. I, I should be able to pull more Vonnegut books from memory. Oh. Cat's Cradle. There you go. <laughs> I mean, Bluebeard with the legend and the murders. That's, that was a good, I was very yeah. impressed. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and like we said, we have another one of these planned and slated. So please stick around in a few months for, again, it's called the writer's crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the many lives of slaughterhouse five by Tom Roston, nonfiction book, analyzing, uh, you know, Vonnegut's relationship to the war and ties in with this and everything else. And then in the meantime, people out there, authors, artists, get busy making more Vonnegut related stuff. Right. Because we only have we've only got one more episode, then we'll be out again. So get on it. Folks, I can't draw. I'm not kidding. I'm pretty bad at it. And so if others could pick up the slack, that would be great. That'd be phenomenal. But yeah, so we'll see y'all in the future. And uh, I guess until then, if this isn't nice. What is? <laughs>